record. All right, friends, welcome to another episode of White Collar Crimes. We tell you or show you the only color in our system that truly matters is green. I'm the host, Ryan Horn. We got a sequel here, folks. Joined in part two, we got our guest from last week, our occasional sidekick, Greg Ulinchis, joins us again. And if you remember, we talked to attorney Sandra Ferguson, who joins us from Washington State again. Great to have you both back. Thank you. And real quickly, Sandra, just a real quick summary. If some of the listeners happen to be tuning in for the first time that didn't catch it last time, what uh, what was would be a good summary of your situation and what's led you to where you were at now, where we're pushing and talking about some need for reform in the uh, bar association? Sure. Um, well, first, I want to thank you for giving me another opportunity to to speak on this topic, and I guess. Um, you know, I don't, I, in retrospect, I feel like I was a little bit, um, maybe I didn't quite get my message across as succinctly as I would have liked to um, last time. Um, and I've never had the opportunity prior to, to our last, uh, your last podcast to, to really speak uh, about this issue. And the issue being, you know, I was attracted to your uh, white collar crime, you know, the title of your uh, podcast, and that's what led me to you because I've been thinking a lot about white collar crime and what it is, and um, you know, uh, I, you know, I guess what's led me to think about it a lot is that I was a victim of, I am a victim of white collar crime um, committed by a lawyer who I hired to protect me, um, and so I was really, um, I think one of the podcasts I tuned into, uh, you were actually discussing, you know, what, what is the definition of white collar crime? And, um, you know, I, it's, I, I think you, you put it pretty, uh, pretty well, and uh, you can look it up on, I've also looked it up on the FBI's website. And, um, but, you know, I think it's always helpful to start with a definition. And, you know, basically, it's some form of, you know, a crime committed by deceit, deception, concealment, violation of a trust. Violation of trust is a big factor in white collar crime. Yeah, very, yeah, very yes. good. And it's not dependent on, you know, the commission of the crime is not dependent on and usually doesn't involve physical force or the threat of physical force. No, it's very different from street crime. And I think in your case, you were burned by somebody that had a fiduciary responsibility to look after your best interest, correct? Correct. He's, he had a fiduciary responsibility to me and, um, and all lawyers do. And I know this because I am a lawyer. Um, and I assumed that that, you know, he would be acting in accordance with his fiduciary duty when he gave me advice um, in an area of law that I didn't know uh, that I knew almost nothing about. And he knew a whole lot about. Um, so, you know, and the motivation behind white collar crimes is, you know, financial. So I guess, you know, with that starting definition, um, you know, yes, my, my uh, interest in this subject came about because of my personal experience of um, being a victim of a really actually quite serious white collar crime that involved uh, conversion of a, a large sum of money by this lawyer uh, while he was representing me and the use of, um, by him of the courts to commit his fraud 
and the use of the court registry to hold the funds that he was converting for his own purposes. And those funds actually didn't belong to me, they belonged to my clients. So, um, so you know, it was, uh, you know, it was very distressing to realize and find myself in a position and shocking actually to find myself in a position where um, I didn't seem to have anybody to go to. Um, you know, I tried going to, I, 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 I had a, a past, a past scrape with the bar association. So um, I didn't really uh, have a whole lot of trust in them. Right. So I, before, and, I, and because I viewed this as a criminal more than an ethical, I mean, it was both, but, it, but I viewed it as a criminal matter and it was, um, it was a crime. But um, when I went to the police, you know, the response I got predictably, um, I guess is, you know, the, the patrolman who came out to uh, take my report, take the report, um, he, you know, basically said, well, this is, you know, really out of my uh, league. <laughs> you know, in which I understood. Uh, and then I, you know, so he did take a report and I pushed them to, I pushed the police department to actually assign a detective to the, to the case. Um, however, uh, there was never really any investigation. And I felt that it was probably over because it involved legal issues and the legal system and, you know, legal process and rules. Um, it was probably outside his bailiwick as well. Um, so at any rate, I then, you know, I also went to the attorney general's office because the attorney general of Washington state is, um, has jurisdiction over consumer protection, over, uh, consumer protection act issues. And, um, uh, really pretty much the response I got there initially was, you know, you need to go to the bar association. This involves a lawyer and we don't handle those. And I fought back on that one. And they did end up deciding that they did handle that. They could handle that. It was within their jurisdiction under the CPA. Um, but then they kind of treated it as, well, if you, if you want to mediate, you guys want to mediate, uh, we'll, we'll facilitate that. And when the lawyer who had committed the crimes didn't want to do that, um, then that was the end of that and they closed the file. So um, ultimately, I did ultimately actually this attorney had the nerve to go to report me to the Bar Association. I filed a civil action against him and he reported me to the Bar Association. And because of um, this past en enmity between me and the Bar Association, they began to investigate me instead of the criminal um, conduct, instead of the criminal conduct I was alleging. So, um, so that ended up, I am still under investigation and have been since 2016, although obviously that's what, five years ago. So there's really been no investigation of me. And I'm not even sure what that investigation is, what I'm accused of, but that won't stop them. So well, and anyway, I know you mentioned too, due process rights are not the same in dealing with them when you are an attorney, correct? That's, that's right. Yeah. So I'm, uh, they can pretty much do whatever they want. Um, uh, that's the reality of the situation. And they've pretty much done, you know, done me almost as much harm as they possibly can already. So um, I feel that that, you know, in a way I wish, I wish it were different. I wish I had never gone through all of this, but since I have, I want to, um, I want to present this 
I want to make the public aware and um, of, you know, the fact that no one's protecting them from um, bad lawyers. And um, that the, you know, the way the system is set up, that is kind of a foreseeable consequence of it. And I think that I'm optimistic that where there's a will, there's a way, and we can certainly uh, reimagine a different situation where um, the public can actually be protected from white collar crimes committed by lawyers. So, um, so I don't want to hide behind. Uh, I mean, I don't want to mince words here. I mean, I, I have some pretty strong opinions. My concern, and you know, my my general interest in white collar crime, but then specifically in um, you know, protecting the public from lawyers who use their fiduciary relationship and their power as an officer of the court and their knowledge of the law to take unfair advantage of their clients or, you know, members of the public and to commit serious financial crimes that harm not only people, you know, the victims, but the integrity of the judicial system and um, harm the courts. And it can destroy lives. I know I, speaking of that, I have a plan to do one. It was an episode on American greed about an attorney in Kentucky, not too awfully far from where Greg and I are at. And he was ripping people off on disability claims. And he had a little system worked out with, with the judge where they were, you know, getting the kickbacks from it and everything like that. And long story short, they both ended up going to prison, but they destroyed some lives. Uh, one or two of yeah. these folks that lost their disability actually committed suicide, you know, because they thought their life was over, you know, they were going to get no money and yeah. on and on. So, and that's the thing we always point out on this show, the, the, these crimes sometimes have more long-term damage than just the common street crimes do. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, have you ever wondered, I, I mean, this is something that's gotten me wondering is why, um, in a way, it seems to me that even, even on some subconscious level, you know, I think a lot of us think of, um, we're more lenient sort of as a society toward white collar crime than than we are toward, you know, the guy out in the street who might, you know, rob somebody or, you know, um, and, and you might think, well, that's because there's violence involved or the threat of force. But um, really, if we examine our notions about this, these crimes are extremely damaging to, uh, I mean, they have a ripple effect. Well, and a lot um, and, of them do cause death. I, you know, I don't know if you're the one we did on the Ford Pinto scandal from the 70s, you know, that caused some right. wrecks and, and some deaths. And, you know, the W.R. Grace Mining Company that killed basically almost an entire town with asbestos. I mean, you know, yeah. it, these crimes do sometimes turn deadly. And, uh, you know, like I said, that was a case there. The attorney, you know, by ripping somebody's disability off, you know, he destroyed a family and ultimately, you know, drove a very vulnerable person to suicide. I mean, these. Right. Crimes, you know, sometimes have a lot harder effects on people than than what we realize. And, you know, attorneys and, you know, the like I've said, every profession is prone to having people abuse it and, you know, commit crimes. And I've, I've done shows on politicians, business people, uh, just common, ordinary scam artists. And, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, even attorneys and doctors are involved in these types of crimes. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's... Um... I think we do have maybe a, a subconsciously a lot of us do have um, a, a, an idea that you know these violent crimes are worse. But I also think there's something about 
um, we kind of have a caste system in our society and there are people at the top of that system and there are people at the bottom. Yeah. And so the people at the top who have power and have money and commit crimes that harm a lot of people and do very serious harm to our society um, are sometimes or often not held accountable. And, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I pointed out several times on this show when people do white collar crime, criminals do commit their acts. If they are sentenced at all, it's often very short sentences. There's been a few cases, Bernie Madoff and Stuart Parnell and a few others that I've covered that got long, lengthy sentences. But the overwhelming majority of them, if they get anything at all, is very little. And if anybody hears, I've got a foster puppy here joining me. So uh, if you... <laughs> Anyone's interested in adopting, we have a beautiful black lab puppy you can message me on the Facebook page for, but he is uh -huh. adorable. But anyway, uh, you know, they very rarely get harsh sentences. And, you know, part of the problem we see and what Greg and I have talked about prior to leading up to this week in the show is how hard tort reform is going to be. Is it even possible? Well, one, I guess, like Greg pointed out, I think you did, Greg, we should probably explain what we mean by tort reform. And uh, secondly, I mean, we've been hearing it for years, if not decades, but in your opinion as an attorney, with what you've told us about how hard it is with, since the bar associations basically police themselves, are we really honestly going to see any kind of real legitimate tort reform in our lifetime? Uh, that brings me to my favorite subject, which is expressing my own opinion on what I think would be, um, would bring about reform to, at least to the um, the issue that I'm concerned with, which is that um, um, my experience, I'm just going to say it, you know, my experience uh, as a person who was a crime victim um, by committed, the crime being committed by a lawyer is that um, the bar association, uh, bar associations are not protecting the public. And in fact, they're aiding and abetting these crimes. Um, and so I, you know, my, in my opinion, um, self-regulation of the legal profession has to end. Um, that's one thing, so, you know, that's an antiquated notion uh, that somehow lawyers are above the law or are, uh, you know, so all of them are so um, ethical and uh, that they won't, you know, that there's not a problem there. Um, and self-regulation, I mean, that's, really just the fox guarding the hen house as i think i said last week yeah, so, so yep. legal prof the you know the legal profession in my opinion should be policed lawyers should be policed by a state agency so that you know that state agency is somewhat accountable to the public um also the state agency should be you know should be staffed with people who have knowledge of the law and of legal procedure and court procedures and, but, and are also experienced in the investigation and prosecution of white collar crimes, financial crimes. Um, and the state agency responsible for regulating the business of law uh, should be independent from law firms and those who are actually actively involved in the business of law so that there's a independence there. Um, and what we now currently have is we have a lobby, a lobbying group um, that has been empowered with state, um, you know, state authority uh, to police lawyers, and uh, and there's no, you know, separation of that lobbying special interest group from the uh, policing um, aspect of things, 
And um, again, that's, you know, the problem of the fox guarding the hen house and yes. protection of consumers and the public should be the only mission of the state agency that's responsible for regulating the business of law and policing lawyers. And if people want to have bar associations, bar associations do perform important functions, but there's no um, reason that they need to be um, that they need to be mandatory. Um, you know, the, we now have a very diverse, you know, society, and lawyers reflect that diversity in our society. And um, but the bar association comes from an era, you know, in the turn of the century when, uh, you know, lawyers were seeking the, the whole idea behind forming or asking the state to uh, make bar associations mandatory was to give um, bar associations or the legal profession greater lobbying abilities. So, you know, well-funded and, um, and, you know, a sort of a state legitimacy to them and, and the exercise of state powers. So I think, you know, we can see that, that, you know, if we want, if the courts want, I mean, first we have to look at what, what are bar associations, what do bar associations actually do? And I'm not sure, I think most members of the public do believe that bar associations, you know, if your lawyer does you wrong, hey, I'm gonna report you to the bar. I think that's kind of a popular notion. Um, and then beyond that, I'm not sure what to what degree uh, the public really is aware of what bar associations do and what their role is. And again, I'm now I'm talking about mandatory bar associations versus voluntary bar associations because most states have mandatory bar associations where lawyers have to join, they have to pay dues and finance uh, the activities of the bar. So what the bar does is, you know, one of its roles is to um, is to propose uh, rules, you know, and uh, court, court rules. And um, another function is to, uh, you know, have educational, make educational opportunities available for um, bar members and um, to, you know, uh, go to the legislature with ideas about what should be done to improve the, or, and to go to the state uh, Supreme Court with ideas about improving the administration of justice. Um, those are all things that can be done, um, arguably by um, equally, if not better, by voluntary bar associations. And then you have a more balanced, um, I guess, uh, you know, um, people speaking on behalf of lawyers from very, I mean, you know, lawyers are a very diverse group. And, you know, some of us represent uh, the little people, some of us represent, um, you know, big corporations, right. some of from small towns, some of us are people of color, some of us are minorities, some of us are women, some are men, some are white, some are not, you know. Right. So, I mean, um, but but the Bar Association currently, and I guess, you know, you can, I, I, I don't, I think that by mandating that there's this one state bar that's, you know, legitimate, and then these lesser state bars, um, uh, the one that the one that's well funded and has this sort of uh, status as a state, a state uh, entity or state empowered entity, is giving one group much more the ear of the legislature and the courts uh, than the other groups. So 
um, that's another, you know, so, so when you look at what bar associations do, I mean, they're the, the mandatory bar associations, um, I think they have quite a lot of influence on who becomes judges um, because just because they are, um, you know, given this sort of role as a sort, sort of a state agency without any of the accountability of a state agency. Right. And, um, and they, you know, and they have a number of other roles that, but, but all of this really can be done. I think all of these roles can be fulfilled but without making lawyers join one state bar and pay that bar um, uh, taxes. And, you know, we definitely need somebody policing lawyers and we definitely need somebody regulating lawyers, but that should not be lawyers. Yes, and that's a good point. Well, we had a situation and this is something if you're ever interested in even coming on down the road again, a case to look at that happened in our area. It's a very famous local case. I've read the book. I know Greg has. Why don't you tell a little bit, Greg, about Operation Greylord? The Operation Greylord was by, in, in um, Illinois, um, since basically it's Cook County with all the people, and we have Southern Illinois and Central Illinois, the judges rotate occasionally. Mm -hmm. So we had a judge named Brockton Lockwood. Um, and he did a stint for a certain amount of time there at Cook County. And he saw all the corruption in the hallways, whatever, that's going on. So he approached the, uh, the feds uh -huh. to, to uh, wear wire and try to clean up some of this mess. Uh -huh. And they did not want to protect him. They didn't want to give him immunity. Or nothing. So he had to fight an uphill battle to do the right thing. And, you know, it, the book outlines this that he had to fight actually to protect himself because mm -hmm. nobody wants this to change up there. Mm -hmm. yeah, very corrupt. Um, it, it's a, a short read. I would recommend if you're interested in coming on even again down the road, read that. It's a short read, but it's, yeah, it's called Operation Greylord by uh, Judge Brockton Lockwood, but he exposed an enormous amount of corruption there in Chicago, which, you know, I mean, that's not a shock that probably anyone listening, you know, corruption <laughs> in Chicago, but uh, yeah, like Greg pointed out, he, he put himself in harm's way and, you know, he uh, unfortunately passed away about a year or two ago, if I think, and, yes. you know, but he certainly would have been one, I think that probably would have been interested in hearing your story. And who was he? Uh, so you're saying he became a, a, he wore a wire? Yeah, he became basically a whistleblower and uh -huh. exposed a lot of judicial and legal corruption in Chicago. And like uh, Greg said, he wore a wire. I even read, wasn't there one part on there, Greg, where even in a cowboy boot, he had a wire yeah. in there? Yeah, you know, he was just seen as a, you know, good old local yokel. Because, you know, I don't know if you're very familiar with Illinois, but where Greg or I, we live in the downstate area, which is pretty rural compared to, you know, certainly Chicago and all that. And yeah, I don't think they probably took him too seriously, but uh, he, he did end up exposing an enormous amount of corruption. And I think that was what the FBI called it, wasn't it, Greg? Operation Greylord. That was why the yeah, book was named that. The yeah. yeah, the FBI, huh. the FBI called that, that. But it basically, you could go up there and you could see that the deals were made out in the hallway. Uh, you know, if you want your client, you know, a sentence or this, that, and the other, you know, you, you made the deal in the hallway and it was all worked out. And yeah, Chicago yeah. is, it still is. And, and bribery was just off the scales, I think he pointed out too. 
Um, there's a line that me and Ryan use occasionally from the movie. Uh, uh, the Untouchables. Untouchables, yeah. We don't know what it means, but Sean Connery said this, and I'll try to do it. He said, this, this town speaks like a whorehouse at low tide. We don't know what it means, but Sean Connery said it. And Sean Connery said it, so it was funny, you know. <laughs> I get the gist, though. I get the gist. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I mean and, and it's not changed from the, you know, gangster prohibition era when that took place to now. And even when was uh, Lockwood, Greg? That was in like the 70s and 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, that was some time ago. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Sandra, I, I would recommend you could, you know, probably, I don't know, you might even be able to get like an ebook version of it or something, but it's a pretty short read, but it is. I would recommend anybody out there read it if you're interested in, you know, corruption and in, in, in the judicial system. This was uh, certainly a case that brought it out here in the land of Lincoln. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that it led, despite that being brought out, Greg, I don't recall actually leading to too many re reforms of our legal system in this state. Do you? It went back, just back the way it was. They gave sacrificial, sacrificial lambs and that was it. You know, so they gave up some people. They they got did some prison time, you know, country club, and it was all back to normal. And yeah. that's you know that's something we pointed out, and that's you know we uh, we feel for you in this situation because you know you're battling you know a good old boys club for lack of better words that seems to not. I mean, like I said, when it comes down to we couldn't really figure this out on the last show, and I don't think we will on this one. Just who exactly? is this agency and I'm, you know, by meaning the bar association, who are they accountable to in, in the end of the day? Yeah. Um, and that is, that is really uh, the problem is that there's a lack of accountability. Be, I mean, you know, like I, like I said, last time, the, the, the law, when the law was passed in 1933, um, the theory was that the state Supreme court, you know, was supervising is the, is, is, heads up the bar association really and can tell the bar association what to do and supervise the bar association and the reality is is not really that the reality is that you know judges come and go from the courts while this powerful wealthy institution continues on is a constant you know so who's going to actually have the power in that situation um not the not this judges justices on the state supreme court who by the way are very busy with their jobs as judges <laughs> so they don't really want and cannot they don't have the bandwidth i don't think for you know they have to delegate a lot to the bar association so, and judges are politicians you know people forget that right right yeah they are voted in and um and at and, the end of the day some of them are probably not going to want to rock the boat too much probably i would exactly. say exactly yeah Exactly. They're not well, going to rock the boat. Uh, well, that's no, money, sure. money means a lot in our legal system. I mean, uh, a, person, a person with a lot of money can get the best investigators, get the best attorneys, and it does make a difference. And that's what it comes down to, as you said, Ryan, it's all about color green. It's the only color that truly matters. I mean, that's one thing I've seen regardless. You know, I mean, I think we saw that in the O.J. Simpson case and countless of other celebrity cases. It really... You know, it, I mean, I've seen mostly, and I know you probably have too, Sandra, because Greg and I both have, you know, quite a bit of experience ourselves working in the criminal justice system. And, you know, the best thing I think I ever heard it said was about prison is basically for poor defendants with public defenders. You very rarely see wealthier people with, 
private attorneys going to prison. And I pointed that out to my classes in, that I've taught on white collar crime. You know, how many yeah. billionaires are sitting in prison tonight or even millionaires for that matter? Yeah. A handful, maybe, yeah. but not many. <laughs> well, look, yeah. at the, look at the consequences. I mean, look at uh, Ron Bogolovich, our former governor. He's doing he's doing commentary now on on Fox News. Yes. And I think he's got a podcast, which actually I did a show on Rod and he's welcome to come on sometime and discuss, you know, what happened. But uh, I think he was disbarred uh, by the Illinois Bar Association. But I mean, you know, I, I doubt he had any plans to, you know, resume his legal career or anything anyway. But uh, yeah, the fact of the matter, I, I don't think uh his pension was ever taken. I think, you know, that's been a subject of controversy too. A lot of these uh, guys that go to prison, these politicians, they don't lose their pensions. And, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of people that, you know, they're going to lose their 401k, they're going to lose, you know, their home, whatever they have. But yeah, the, the wealthier ones just don't suffer the consequence that uh, consequences that a lot of the everyday folks do. Well, and ideally, um, I think that, you know, with all the money and money that um, they're collecting from us, you know, actually bar associations could be helping to even, you know, assuming that there wasn't corruption, they could be helping, you know, to, um, you know, I am coming from a place where I was a solo practitioner um, and I had a, you know, full-time paralegal, but um, I was taking cases on contingency fee basis because, uh, you know, my clients um, didn't have the money to pay me by the hour and I was doing civil rights cases. So there was an attorney fee shifting provision in that where, you know, the client, the, my clients could recover or I could recover my attorney's fees if we won. Um, but there's a lot of risk to that. And nobody, I mean, you know, getting out of law school is just the beginning of learning how to actually practice law. So, um, you know, lawyers who are out on their own, they could use a leg up, they could use some help, a lot of support, you know, um, and I just, I feel like, um, you know, if we recognize that, and, you know, the money that goes into bar associations um, could be used to give support to people who are doing their best to uh, do their best by their clients. Um, I just don't think that the the vehicle for that is the mandatory bar. Um, so, well, we, you know, Greg and I have talked about this. It, it seemed like before bar associations got involved, we had some very brilliant legal minds that did just fine without the traditional bar association regulated law schools. Yeah, right. Clarence Darrell, Oliver Wendell Holmes. I mean, yeah, he's from Illinois, right? Clarence Darrow. Yes, he was, yeah. uh, I think, I think so. And uh, yeah, very famous defense attorney. And, you know, I think uh, I've read a lot of it, I guess, in the old days, you just, you know, studied the law and, you know, kind of like as an apprenticeship, Abraham Lincoln did that. And then, you know, when the time was right, you took the bar exam and you were an attorney. But now, I mean, they're causing, you know, these young people to go easily six figures in debt, I imagine now. I mean, law school tuition, I know it just has continued to go off the charts. Yeah. I mean, I do know people who were pretty much felt after they got out of law school, they needed to go work off their debt at a, at a large law firm or a, you know, a, a well-paying law firm. So it does force people into um, situations where they can't necessarily go work for the public interest. And maybe they tell themselves that someday they will, <laughs> but you know how that goes. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I think there's, I, I think that um, 
right now I, I'm, you know, I can say that I know based on my personal experience that there is the Washington State Bar Association is corrupt and they are causing uh, corruption in the court system. In the yes, justice. Senator, what the, what's the scary thing about it is obviously by talking to you, you're a smart lady, went to college, went to law school. Think about the poor, basic individual in these small towns that looked for their attorneys, didn't trust them. And, you know, can they do that now? I mean, can they trust their attorneys to, to do the right thing for them, to be their advocates? Yeah, and I, I think there, I mean, I think there are a lot of well, of, of ethical attorneys who do their best, their utmost for their clients and, oh, you know, obey the, um, but, but where there, where that isn't happening, that's where we need, uh, you know, recourse and the Bar Association is the problem, not the solution, at least our Washington State Bar Association, um, is is part of the problem and it certainly sounds like any type of realistic reform is if it happens at all is going to be a long uphill battle i you know it's possible i think we talked last week about what's happening right now in um you know in the courts is that because of this janus decision that you know where the supreme court right held that um uh unions can't uh you know by uh, forcing people to join unions violate their constitutional rights, uh, First Amendment rights. Um, it, it, this may work its way through the court that, you know, that may apply as well if the reasoning is consistent, um, may apply to bar mandatory bar associations as well. That would be which interesting. Would, but then yeah. I still don't know, you know, I've wondered, well, where does that leave the whole policing of lawyers? Um, because that is still a question apart from whether you force lawyers to join um, bar associations and finance them. There's still this issue of how do we, it's a, it's a public safety issue and it's of the utmost importance to me, which is why I wanted to be on your show. Um, well, speaking of being uh, on the show, I would like to do one next month and I think our local people would really love it uh, on Operation Greylord. And I know, Greg, you're familiar with the case. Sandra, would you, about, say, a month from now, be willing to come back on, get some time to maybe research the case a little bit and, and whatnot? Because I think uh, I'd like to keep this as a kind of an ongoing uh, topic on the show. And maybe you could become kind of a recurring character like on the show. And <laughs> I'd like to have uh, have both of you back and discuss that case because I, I, I studied it in college and I'd like to kind of, you know, refresh myself with it too, because uh, we got just a few minutes left here. But would you both be willing to come back, say, in about a month, and you know, for out for our listeners out here to know that we would be discussing that case uh, fully? Uh, sure. uh, yes, I'd like to get a hold of the book. Is it who is it by? Uh, uh, Brockton Lockwood. He was the judge, and yeah, it's called Operation Greylord. I'll I can uh, probably uh, text or email you some info on it after the show here and uh yeah give you about a month to research it and greg and i can kind of familiarize ourselves with it and i actually know uh his stepson his stepson is an attorney that uh you know because i might and i work for the probation department where i live and i spend a lot of time in court and he uh i'm actually uh i know his son-in-law and uh you know i knew uh, my uncles a couple of my uncles were police officers and knew him back when he was a judge as well but uh it's a fascinating case and uh 
I think, Greg, wouldn't you say, though, the arrogance of these big city judges, they, they really underestimated this country judge, I'd say, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, that's why the whole uh, um, cowboy boots and stuff, he played the role. He did. And uh, that's where he held it, put his listening devices. And, um, oh, so he was a judge or was he an attorney? No, he was a judge. Yeah, he was a judge. And okay. uh, like Greg said, they did some rotation you know, and he did a rotating stint up in Cook County. And that's when he was, you know, pretty alarmed at all the corruption he saw. And like Greg said, he went to the feds and, you know, he didn't really get the support he probably truly needed, but he did wear a wire and did expose it. And yeah, that, that uh, FBI operation was called Operation Greylord. That's where that name comes from. So yeah, do a little research on that and uh, we will do a whole show on it. And I think we can get probably some a good amount of local people to uh, tune into that one as well. And then out there, for those of you that are out there listening, I think you'd find that the case fascinating as well. So, um, so we got just a couple minutes left here. Uh, want to thank everybody. And again, thank you two for sure being on there uh, real quick. I know Greg, you've talked about, we may be doing some uh, seminars this summer. Yeah. Some seminars around the area. Uh, I used to, for 17 years, I taught uh, private investigations at John A. Logan and uh, me, me and you might go on the road. Yeah. We might be taking that. So keep a, uh, keep your eye here ears out for that folks uh like us on facebook white collar crimes uh you can see me on my website ryan-horn.com if you happen to be in need of voiceover service i do that as well and uh we uh will be doing coming up some other shows coming up i got one coming up on the delta horizon oil spill uh, as well as greg and i plan on doing one soon on the nfl concussion scandal and uh yeah sondra we'd love to have you back on the operation Greylord episode Okay, great. I will get a hold of that book. Well, fantastic. Well, folks, we thank you for tuning in. Uh, like I said, you can also donate to us on the Anchor FM page. Uh, but more, more importantly, we appreciate you tuning in more than anything. So keep a look out there, folks. Uh, you know, people are always trying to scam one of us for a dollar. So let's look out for each other. God bless, and we will see you next time.